Hi all. I'm making this recording from home uh, because I missed recording during the context of our service. Um, but this is the second sermon on uh, the goodness of God. So last week we looked at this idea of goodness that I'm sure was familiar to all of us. We were created to be good, made in the image of God, and the miraculous reality is that because of Christ's perfect life and his saving grace, we are good. Though my life often bears testimony to my old self, my own brokenness, um, still I'm living in the truth of my new creation. God is making me good, making me into who I already am because of Christ. Last week, I prayed that we might understand our goodness, understand that it is a free gift, and understand that what is laid open before us is the possibility of doing good, of living lives against which there is no law. And we were challenged, certainly I was, to question whether we truly believed that our life held the possibility of goodness. That we could, in all our shortcomings and weaknesses and failures, still we could please our Father in Heaven with our shaky, awkward steps toward goodness. Not because morality saves us, but because we have been set free from that life lived in the dungeon of our selfishness, set free to live in imitation of our King. The question I might open with now is, how does seeing others' goodness change how we treat them? If this is true for me, it is true for all. And how does understanding our own goodness change how we treat ourselves? Today we're turning from our goodness as children of light to the goodness of God. If that quality of goodness we looked at last week was an outcome of the gracious perspective of God on his children, today I'd like to think about God's goodness as the hope for our world. If our goodness is an extension of God's grace, made in his image, covered by his blood, freed to live lives of goodness, well then his goodness is also a message of hope. Often when I have heard sermons on the goodness of God, much of what I hear is a repetition of something familiar and true, but for some reason, rather cold. God is just good, we're told. Romans 8.28 tells us that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. James 1.17 reminds us that every good and perfect gift is from above. God's goodness is rightly echoed as undeniable, unchanging, and self-evident. But our lives, of course, contain their measure of difficult, heartbreaking, exhausting, and overwhelming challenges. And I suspect many of us are experiencing or have experienced something of this. The undeniable fact is that even if God is good, life certainly isn't. Not always. C.S. Lewis writes on this idea in The Problem of Pain. 
and he says, if God were good, he would wish to make his creatures perfectly happy. And if God were almighty, he would be able to do what he wished. But the creatures are not happy. Therefore, God lacks either goodness or power or both. This is the problem of pain in its simplest form. So just as our awareness of our brokenness wages a war against the truth of our goodness in God, so too our awareness of pain in this world wages a war against God being good. I mentioned in an email last week a line from the novel Home by Marilyn Robinson, where she writes that sometimes truth has sharp edges and hard corners, and could be seriously at odds with kindness. I don't think sermons should minimize the struggle for those of you who find it hard to accept God's goodness. I don't want to offer that thin encouragement, you know, things will get better because God is good. What we are talking about is actually part of what we do as Christians all the time. It's this idea of living as if. Even in the absence of feeling. Trust, even in the absence of light. In treating God's goodness as hope, we band together in the midst of our suffering. I cannot begin to stress just how much my faith is a wrestle between things as they seem, things as they are, and one day will be. I was only talking with a friend the other day about this very wrestle between belief and the reality of life. And naturally, we arrived at that familiar line in Hebrews, where it talks about how faith is always a wrestle between trust and doubt. The line is, now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. I love what the theologian John Calvin has to say about this. He writes, Promise to us is eternal life, but it is promise to the dead. We are assured of a happy resurrection, but we are as yet involved in corruption. We are pronounced just, as yet sin dwells in us. We hear that we are happy, but we are as yet in the midst of many miseries. An abundance of all good things is promised to us, but still we often hunger and thirst. God proclaims that he will come quickly, but he seems deaf when we cry to him. What would become of us were we not supported by hope, and did not our minds emerge out of the midst of darkness, above the world, through the light of God's word and of his spirit? I love that line. What would become of us if we were not supported by hope? This may be the question that I have asked maybe more than any other. How would I have managed this if I didn't have hope that God was good? And that confidence from Hebrews, that confidence in what we hope for, that word is taken from a really lovely Greek word, hypostasis which doesn't only mean confidence or assurance, but also support or substance, something real. The confidence that we have in faith, the hope that illuminates this faith, 
It is steady and substantial and real. It is a gift of God. Faith is not just blindness. It is not empty guessing. Faith is the substance, the support, the bedrock that God provides us in order that we might hold on to hope. In looking at God's goodness, we are looking at a picture of hope. Our hope in a God that saves and God's unceasing hope for us. Perhaps of all the narratives and poems and songs and stories of Scripture, it is the Psalms that articulate God's goodness as hope the best. Anyone who has looked on the sermon schedule for this year will have seen that as a church we're going to spend a long time in the Psalms later on this year. But I I couldn't get away from wanting to speak about just one of them today. In his beautiful book, simply called Psalms, Walter Brueggemann writes that Psalms often attempt to make sense of the unexpected hope God's people have in him. He writes that the speaker and the community of faith are often surprised by grace when there emerges in present life a new possibility that is inexplicable, wrought by the inscrutable power and goodness of God. The Psalms offer us a pattern of our faith. They shift from brokenness to restoration, from despair to joy, from forgetfulness to a reminder of God's goodness. Even those Psalms that begin with praise are often reflections on a previous trouble, having been resolved. In the midst of praise, we don't forget suffering. Think about Psalm 103. It begins, Praise the Lord, my soul. All my inmost being, praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases. Who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion. Who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. So just in this opening we see that the thanks emerges from the pit who redeems your life from the pit. The assurance and hope in God's goodness is born out of God's redemption. He forgives, he heals, he redeems, he crowns, he satisfies, he works righteousness. Brueggemann writes that all these prayers and songs speak about the intervening action of God to give life in a world where death seems to have the best and strongest way. The songs are not about the natural outcome of trouble, but about the decisive transformation made possible by this God who causes new life where none seems possible. And you notice also how the psalm begins. Praise the Lord, my soul. This is such a familiar beginning, and it it belongs to so many of the psalms that we don't realize maybe how odd it is. It is the self summoning the self to praise. Praise the Lord, my soul. It is talking to oneself. And so we need to do this, and I think we often do it in the space of prayer. We're reminding ourselves that ultimately... All our lives must refer back to the goodness of God. 
None of us are safe from the trials and tribulations of this world. None of us are outside of the grace and goodness of God. Psalm 103 continues, He made known his way to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbour his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. See, the psalm contains a moment of reflection and remembering. In verse 7, he made known his ways to Moses, his deeds to the people of Israel. When Israel thinks about God's goodness, they are reminded of Moses. Verse 8 contains the very words spoken to Moses on Mount Sinai. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. This is so much like my own faith walk. Remember what he has done, Jed. Don't forget now in the midst of this new trouble. Psalm 103 emphatically reminds Israel that God is faithful in his goodness. See what I have already done and trust that I will go on doing it. How often I need this reminder in the midst of the mire. So verses 9 to 14 present a view of God that is unexpected to a culture and a people that knew God as judge. This is grace-filled, it's hopeful, and it begins in the negative. He will not always, he will not, he will not. He will not always accuse, he will not harbour his anger forever, he does not treat us as we deserve, he does not repay us according to our failures. You are not wayward sons or daughters only, or any more. You are a child of God. It is not what you expect or deserve, but instead what our good father sees and what our good father does. And who is this good God in whom Israel hopes? Well, the psalm tells us that his love is so extravagant, his forgiveness so absolute, that our condemnation and shame is further from us than the east is from the west. And on what is his claim to goodness based? What is the basis for this goodness? Well, it is his steadfast love, in which we have hope. Walter Brueggemann adds a line to this. He says, the result is that Yahweh shatters all expectations. He does not treat us as we might anticipate. God utilizes the generosity and concern of a caring father. The ground for newness is not in needy Israel, but in the will of the loving father. This is the essence of who God is. 
as we so often sing, you're a good, good father. It is who you are. You are good. You are good. And we are a child of God. Yes, we are. So Psalm 103 continues. The life of mortals is like grass. They flourish like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it and it is gone. And its place remembers it no more. But from everlasting to everlasting, the Lord's love is with those who fear him. And his righteousness with their children's children. With those who keep his covenant and remember to obey his precepts. The question is implicit. Why does God love us like this? Look at us. Our lives are like grass. We're here and then gone. But the eternal, everlasting, unending love of God is with us who come to him. In his eyes we are made new. We are the prodigal sons and daughters, expecting God to treat us according to human standards and instead finding an impossibly generous God with the embrace of a good father. Again we sing, oh how he loves us. So Psalm 103 may have begun with the worshippers speaking to their souls, reminding themselves to again remember what God had done, remember God's goodness. But in this process of remembering, the psalmist becomes ecstatic, dwelling on God's goodness, having this moment of thankfulness, remembering all that God had done. It's not just their soul, now it's all of creation that should praise God. So the psalm ends. The Lord has established his throne in heaven and his kingdom rules over all. Praise the Lord, you, his angels, you mighty ones who do his bidding, who obey his word. Praise the Lord, all his heavenly hosts, you, his servants, who do his will. Praise the Lord, all his works, everywhere in his dominion. Praise the Lord, my soul. So here in Psalm 103, as I said earlier on, this is the pattern of our faith. Though our lives bear the scars of so much brokenness, though we have been in the pit, our God offers healing and forgiveness, justice, new life. His goodness is not bound up in making us happy. Instead, he is making us good. He is present in the midst of suffering always. I can testify to that hope. It's not suffering that ends. It is God who is our companion in the midst. And he is with us in the midst of our wandering. I can admit to that also. He doesn't give us what we deserve. He doesn't see us as broken, but as redeemable. He does not lose hope in us when we lose hope. He's in the business of transformation. He is our compassionate companion, our good king. His love is with us from everlasting to everlasting. It feels right to say at this moment that the goodness of God is really our only hope. It's not just what we hope in, but it's our only hope. Not because it's reserved for a few of us, but because it's the hope for the world. 
It's our hope in the pit. It's our praise on our lips. The goodness of God is his hope for this world. It's his promise of the coming dawn. It's his steadfast, enduring, unwavering love for wayward children. And all this communal language, right? Our hope. Steadfast love for us. Well, this reminds me that, you know, in our churches at H3O, we're ambassadors of this hope in our own communities. It's not something we jealously guard for ourselves. It's not our hope. God's goodness is good news for the world. So in in my week, in whatever I'm doing, am, am I motivated by God and his hope and his plan? Am I compelled to be an agent of this hope in the lives of others? Am I reminded of his presence with me in the darkness as a companion? Not someone who minimizes the pain, but as a God who is in the midst. As someone who reached down. Christ in Gethsemane. The world is clearly not always a good place. We meet as communities to declare that God is good and then to live out that goodness, right? That's why at H3O we talk about head, hearts, and hands. It's not simply knowing or even knowing for ourselves, but then going and doing it. Because if God's goodness is hope for this world, and if we are agents and ambassadors of that goodness, then we too ought to be hopeful for this world. Don't be downcast, O my soul. Forget not all his benefits. If you remember near the beginning of this message, I I mentioned that faith is something more than just airy hope or blind belief. It is substantial. It is often courageous. It's real. We're living in expectation of A coming kingdom where the promise of new life includes the eradication of all pain and suffering. Where all injustice is put right, where our hope meets with the one we hope in. But let us not forget that our God's goodness and his hope for humanity, his steadfast love, has been proven and it was proved on the cross. Christ's declaration that it is finished is the full stop to us getting what we deserved. And it is the beginning of his new narrative in which we are called children of God, children of light. One day we will meet our hope face to face. Now we live in confident assurance in our good father, our constant companion, our sure thing in the midst of the storm, our God who deserves our praise. The loving father whom we as His children ought to yearn for people to know that love. Not to exclude. Not to alienate. Not to demonize. But to be reminded that we too were once strangers. And this isn't safe, right? The goodness of God is not about comfort. It's not about shoring up hope but hope in temporary things, hope in our wealth, hope in our health, hope in our families, hope in 
those things that we so often trust in. God's goodness is not a promise of safety. And Mr. Beaver, of all people, reminds us of that. In Lewis's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, he says, who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. And it's that good God who calls us into his love, whom we too learn to love, learn to put our substantial hope in, and yearn to extend that same generous love, unearned, undeserved, to all of God's children. And who is my brother? Who is my neighbor? All people. We are all children of God. And he is a good father. Amen.